With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To understand what's happening in Israel this week, you could start by watching all the protest videos. You'd see a sea of Israeli flags filling the streets. You'd hear drums and kazoos. I don't know. I feel my future is lost. I feel my kids' future is lost. I feel, I feel like I don't have any hope, any optimistic in my body at the moment. Tens of thousands of people have been turning out to express their outrage at the government's decision to quote-unquote reform the country's Supreme Court. The videos that interest Yair Rosenberg, though, they haven't come from the protesters. They've been from inside the Israeli parliament itself. Today, chaos in the Knesset. And these videos... They are almost as fiery as what's been happening in the streets. Opposition lawmakers chanted shame and stormed out in protest ahead of the vote on judicial reform. You can literally see the lawmakers arguing with each other on the floor at any given point. You can see there's this iconic image of Benjamin Netanyahu sitting in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, with his justice minister on one side and his defense minister on the other side. And you can even read their lips and see the argument happening in real time. Oh, wow. It's one of these paradoxes of Israel, which is it's an incredibly open society, a vibrant society. So you can watch all of these things in real time, even as legislation gets passed that most of the citizens think is going to hurt their democracy. Yair's a writer at The Atlantic, covers the Middle East. He says these arguments in the street and in the Knesset they're about a pretty wonky part of Israeli law, something called the reasonableness standard. Before the Knesset nuked it, the reasonableness standard let the Israeli Supreme Court override decisions made by elected officials. So it's inherited from English common law, but for much of Israel's history, it wasn't used very much. And then in the 80s and 90s, it started to be used more and more to justify more and more things. It's pretty subjective. And that's why it's so controversial. It seems both like a very small thing in some ways, but also a very annoying thing if you're a politician. It is. And, uh, and here's the thing. I, it's something that many experts and people across the Israeli political spectrum would point to as something worth reforming and reigning in, because it's one of the things that makes Israel's Supreme Court more powerful than pretty much any other Supreme Court in the world. But the problem is that the reform so-called happened unilaterally. The coalition came up with a very extreme way to sort of just get rid of the reasonable standard, no compromise, no leaving it around for certain situations where it makes sense, just slashing and burning. Yeah, it's funny because I was going to ask you, is this a small change, a major change? Is it more of the same in Israel? And it sounds like you're saying it's all of those things somehow, what just happened. 
Exactly. If you took it in isolation, you might think it's a smaller change. You might say, oh, yes, well, now the government will have a little more latitude in who it can fire from the civil servants and who it can make a minister, right? But surely they wouldn't say put a convicted criminal in an important position because that would just be bad politics. And also, why would you do such a thing? Doesn't that seem immoral? But the thing is, this government already has people with criminal records in certain jobs. And it tried to put someone else with a criminal record into a job. And then the Supreme Court struck it down using the reasonableness standard. And so the protesters have good reason to believe that this small change will lead to bigger changes and uh, certain government actions. And they also have good reason to believe that it's just the beginning, not the end. Today on the show, how Israel's right wing is firming up its grip on power. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Yair and I last spoke in January, right after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu regained power by creating a coalition of far-right political parties. At the time, Yair and I were talking about the growing influence of settlers in the West Bank who are stoking land disputes with their Palestinian neighbors. It turns out one of the things many of those settlers want is Supreme Court reform. So, Yair says, once Netanyahu took power, this project leapt to the top of his agenda. In January, shortly after this new hardline Israeli government was sworn in, it unveiled its very first major legislative initiative, which was this sweeping reconstruction of the country's judiciary. And I think it's important as we explain this to just explain how important the Supreme Court is in Israel in a way that it's just very different than the United States. There's there's no formal constitution in Israel. And so tell me a little bit about why the Supreme Court is so important in Israel and how that differs from the U.S. Yeah, so a couple of reasons. One is that uh, America has a whole bunch of checks and balances, many branches of government. Everybody knows about this. You learn it in grade school. And it's one of the reasons why sometimes it can be very hard to get a lot of stuff done uh, in the United States government. But in Israel, there are very few checks on a parliamentary majority and its power. And the main check on that power is, in fact, the Supreme Court. And so the Israeli Supreme Court has become this sort of bulwark against unchecked executive power in Israel, government power. In practice, that means standing up for LGBT rights, uh, minority rights, lots of different causes that sometimes aren't popular to give in time, depending on who's in power. And 
someone like Netanyahu actually found this very convenient for much of his career because he always had some hard right coalition members and they would try to pass very, very draconian laws and he'd let them pass and then he'd let the Supreme Court strike it down. So it'd be like, oh, I couldn't actually do that. Sorry. Politicians play these games sometimes, of course. But the thing is, Netanyahu did this so many times and so many far right initiatives got struck down by the courts that the far right got very angry at the Supreme Court. And they said, well, it's not letting us govern like we want to. It's anti-democratic. And so we're going to humble the court if we have the chance. So once Netanyahu gets back in power and he's back in power because of these far right people in the Israeli government, it creates a crisis where they're saying like, hey, got to deal with the courts, huh? Exactly. He's created this sort of monster. He even created the far right party that is pushing this the hardest because uh, originally Israel had a bunch of, you know, disparate uh, little far right parties that usually didn't make it into parliament. Uh, And Netanyahu helped them join forces into one super far right party, which got enough votes to make it in over the threshold of votes you need to get into parliament. But now he's stuck with these people in his government and he absolutely needs their votes if he's going to stay in power. Otherwise, the coalition collapses. So what exactly were the reforms they wanted to pass originally, like back in the winter? Yeah, so there are a whole bunch of components, but like to put it very succinctly, they wanted to change how the Supreme Court justices get appointed. In America, of course, politicians appoint the justices. Um, You know, Congress ratifies it. In Israel, it's more complicated. You have a committee that appoints new Supreme Court justices that includes some politicians, right? But it also includes members of the legal establishment and also former Supreme Court justices. So in practice, the legal establishment plus the opposition plus the uh, former Supreme Court justices sort of can control who goes on the Supreme Court, regardless of who's in power at any given time. And this is seen as creating a very unaccountable judiciary that is elitist, that is disconnected from the public, and that lacks a certain amount of democratic legitimacy. And this has driven real calls for reform of Israel's Supreme Court for some time. So they wanted to change the, the committee, but instead of saying, okay, so we'll tweak the number of seats that go to the government versus you know some of these other groups, and we'll make it a little more balanced, uh, they basically changed it so that the politicians would have almost total control over who becomes uh, a Supreme Court justice. So you get the judges you want, and you get the rulings you want. And then in case that didn't work out, they had something called the override clause, which says that a simple majority of the Israeli Knesset is enough to override any decision of the Supreme Court. It's a real who's watching the watchman kind of moment. Exactly. It was basically saying we're going to subordinate the judiciary to the politicians. And then it comes down to, do you trust politicians with that kind of power? And obviously, many Israelis do not. And certainly, Israelis in the opposition do not. But what we've seen is actually plenty of Israelis who define themselves as conservative or right wing also believe you need courts as a check on government power. And so they oppose this on principle. Yeah. And people really hit the streets. I mean, like filling the streets, you know, through the winter and into the spring. Yes, every single week you have hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the streets across the country. It's the equivalent of millions of Americans protesting every week. It's it's an astounding show of force. And it succeeded in March, if we're going through this timeline, in halting the giant package of all of the things we just discussed. When that happened, did you think like, okay, you know, this isn't going to happen? Or were you more circumspect? What I wrote at the time was that it's just a pause, right, rather than an end. Because it was quite clear that members of Netanyahu's coalition were extremely committed to passing this. And they only begrudgingly agreed to pause it. And they said, well, pause so that we can negotiate some sort of compromise with the opposition. But it was very hard to see how those gaps could be bridged. And once they couldn't be bridged, you'd probably be back to where you were before. Now, it's unlikely, given the incredible outcry, that they would put the same package on the table. And they didn't. What they decided to do instead is what we just saw, what just happened, is they sliced off one small component of the whole package, Uh, and probably the least controversial component, and they tried to pass that. 
and it still provoked this incredible reaction. One question a lot of people are asking right now is in light of such robust protest, why did Prime Minister Netanyahu let this legislation pass? Yair says there are a couple of possible answers to this question. One is that Netanyahu is no longer really at the wheel. After all, he owes his job to the right-wing politicians who helped him regain power. So like Kevin McCarthy in the Freedom Caucus, if Benjamin Netanyahu wants to stay in charge, he's going to have to throw some extremists some bones. The other, more self-serving explanation is that Netanyahu has personal incentives to weaken the judicial system because he himself is on trial at the moment, charged with corruption. And so that neither of those seem great. If you look at Israeli polls, it's absolutely harmed Netanyahu's approval rating. We have seen polls for the first time in many, many years where Israelis point to other politicians as better options for prime minister than Netanyahu. When you look at polling like that, do you see an opportunity? Because I do feel like Israel, like the United States, like a lot of places, Israel's felt stuck for a while. It's kept coming back to Netanyahu. So do you look at this polling that shows people looking around for another option and think like, huh, maybe there's an opportunity to unstick here? In the longer term, potentially, uh, the polls are really bad uh, for this coalition. Uh, They've basically had an unprecedented drop uh, in popularity uh, in recent Israeli politics. But the next election isn't scheduled for several years. The only way that happens sooner is if this coalition collapses. And the paradox of bad polls for a governing coalition in a parliamentary democracy is that it incentivizes the parties to stick together and not go to new elections. Well, notably, the far right folks who had been pushing for this judicial reform, they do not seem shook right now (laughs) in spite of this polling. Like... There's quotes with people who had pushed for this bill, other bills, basically saying we're okay to slow our roll here because, as it was said, this is just like a little bit of the bigger package that Netanyahu was trying to pass back in the winter. You know, we're okay to slow our roll because demographics are on our side. Like we just know eventually we're going to win this thing and get everything we want. So sure, we'll do the little thing now. Exactly. They're playing a long game. They have been playing a long game for a really long time. They were not in power for a very long time. And they think that over time, and they have good reason to believe, that they can get more and more of this stuff through. And so it's sort of a uh, race between their ability to sort of uh, strong arm this coalition into passing the things that they want and the pressures from the outside attempting to pull the coalition apart. I mean, there's been so much discussion of how this law, it really shows the increasingly authoritarian anti democratic tendencies in Israel. But I'm sort of curious, do the ultra conservatives pushing for reforms like this see their own efforts as undemocratic? No, they use the language of democracy to justify what they're doing. And they argue that the Supreme Court should have more accountability to the the electorate and to the people's elected representatives. It shouldn't just be a body of legal professionals and some politicians that decide so that the court sort of can just continuously perpetuate and appoint its own members. You want to have more involvement of the politicians in the process. And like a lot of people are pretty comfortable with that, including some people who are left wing. The issue is more that this government decided that we're going to do the most extreme version of this. We're going to sort of invert the problem. If the problem is the court is too powerful and is running roughshod over some of the people's decisions and the politicians' decisions, well, now we're going to invert it, and now the politicians can run roughshod over the Supreme Court. That isn't solving the problem. That's just creating a new problem that scares a lot of Israeli voters. After the break, 
is there a chance that Israeli politicians could be forced to abandon this judicial overhaul? Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. In the latest season of Blindspot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers, all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blindspot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. Can we talk about the options for what happens now? Like, we've already said how Israel's conservative government is basically saying this is a first step. And so then it leads to all these questions like, what is step two? And then for the opposition, the people who are opposed to this law, what do they do next? So what happens next for both of those folks? So the political opposition has already filed suit against this law in the Supreme Court, right? That's the first step. And the Supreme Court justices are flying in from elsewhere to hear this case. And then they're going to have to make a call about whether or not they're willing to uh, strike down a law that's meant to curtail their own power. And after that, you have branching paths, right? If they strike down the law, the government could decide we're not going to listen, right? Which creates a sort of constitutional crisis in a country without a constitution. Yeah, and this law is is a basic law, is my understanding, which is a, a specific kind of law in Israel that the, that the Supreme Court's never ruled on before. Yeah, it's like a quasi-constitutional law. And in practice, the Israeli Supreme Court in the past has never struck down a basic law. They have interpreted basic laws in ways that basically marginalize them, but they won't get rid of them. So this would be asking it to do something that it hasn't done before. Um, but of course, this is something that's never been done before. So the whole situation is unprecedented. If the Supreme Court strikes it down, it might stall the whole process, or it might galvanize the 
government into saying, well, this is what we said. The court is unaccountable uh, to the politicians. We need to pass the rest of our overhaul so we can start changing who the justices are and overriding their decisions. What about the protesters? Like, what's the next step for them? Like, I see, like, people are still in the streets striking, all those sorts of things. But how long can you keep that up? Well, people have been saying, how long can you keep that up to the protesters uh, since January? So the answer is at least six months. Apparently, the answer is a very long time. And in the short run, a defeat obviously lowers the morale of any protest movement. But it's only the first, you know, small part of this judicial overall package. And if the consequences are sufficiently dire for Israel, right, for its political fabric, for its internal cohesion, that could be the end of it. Already, you're starting to see economic agencies today. Morgan Stanley uh, changed their uh, sovereign credit recommendation to uh, dislike on Israel, saying that the political stability looks bad, right? And we don't necessarily think your investments are as safe here anymore. Moody's is about to release another, uh, is another credit rating agency, is about to release uh, a report on Israel uh, reportedly today, right? So all of these things could have some pretty straightforward consequences for uh, Israel's economy, for its pocketbook, for its place on the international stage. Uh, and that could, you know, force the coalition into some very uncomfortable places. God, it sounds like what you're saying is any any way forward here involves the pain point getting much higher in Israel. Yes. And that is why many people hoped, and the majority of the Israeli public said that they wanted to see a compromise uh, because everybody recognized that the further down this road you go, the more extreme the options get, uh, the more pain that has to be experienced before anything gets resolved. Now, you could end up with, you know, in the disaster scenario, right? You have a disempowered judiciary, you have no checks on the government power, and the government basically uh, decides uh, that we're going to be an illiberal form of uh, majoritarian democracy where what we say goes. Uh, and they start curtailing minority rights and all sorts of freedoms that Israelis have enjoyed uh, in the past. But you could also have, as we discussed, like tremendous pressure from both within Israel and outside on the coalition that makes this a Pyrrhic victory in which this, this reasonableness law that passed is the last law that they pass on this particular subject because the country simply can't take it anymore. It could stall the, leg- the, the coalition or even break it apart. Nobody actually knows. I certainly don't. I heard this interesting response to what happened this week, a kind of frustration with the protesters themselves. And that was because the protesters very much framed their battle as an inter-Israeli one. Like if you looked at the protests in the street, a lot of times people were carrying Israeli flags when they marched. And the criticism here was that framing this as an inter-Israeli fight excluded some of the most marginalized people in Israeli society, specifically Palestinians. What do you make of that criticism? Yeah. So the Israeli protest movement basically wrapped itself from the start in the Israeli flag and claimed themselves the mantle of patriotism, which was a very successful initiative that really made it into sort of the mainstream position. Rather than saying we're, you know, we're somehow against the country, they're saying we stand for the true face of the country for what this country should be. And that meant that they wanted to show that we're more Israeli than you. It meant that they were able to attract, as we discussed, not just uh, left-wing people, not just center people, but right-wing people. You had the uh, son and grandson of Israel's first Likud prime minister, Menachem Begin, uh, protesting with the movement. You have the former uh, head of Israel's Mossad the other day came out against these judicial reforms. Um, and he's one of the people that Netanyahu has named as a possible successor to him. But it didn't work. Well, as a political strategy for creating a big tent, it worked, right? And at the same time, uh, it meant that they were not going to talk about other issues, and they 
gen they tried in general to focus entirely on the court. Um, and that meant that you're not going to talk about the occupation, right? You're not going to talk about pretty much anything else. As the protests have gone on, there's been increasingly recognition within the protest movement itself that a lot of the things that are happening stem from the radicalism of Israel settler movement. And people are starting to realize, wait a second, right? This is a, a broader radical movement that has radical aims that is not just related to the Supreme Court. And in fact, one of the reasons they want to disempower the Supreme Court is so that they can do what they want in the West Bank without the Supreme Court interfering. Yeah, these things aren't unrelated. Like the idea that you could somehow disentangle them is so, it's it's just not, I don't know, that it's impossible, I think. I think that's what, if you if you talk to, for example, uh, you know, some of the heads of the Arab parties, the politicians, the Arab politicians who've been involved, that's what they say. They say that we like these protests because they're protests about what does democracy mean? And you can't have that conversation without talking about us, right? And so as long as this conversation is happening, right, we're going to be a part of it and we're going to change that conversation. And we're going to, and people are going to start to realize, wait, you can't sort of disentangle this sort of uh, anti-democratic move with Israel from these sort of extra-governmental, anti-democratic actors outside Israel who have actually just brought a lot of this stuff home. Yeah, you're Rosenberg. I'm super grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yair Rosenberg is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's also the author of the newsletter Deep Shtetl. On Wednesday, Israel's Supreme Court said it would hear petitions to strike down this new legislation. Those arguments will go before the court in September. And that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. It is our membership program. It is really fantastic. You get all access to Slate.com and ad-free podcasts, just like this one. To find out more about it, go to Slate.com slash WhatNextPlus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.